0: fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Today we're going to talk with uscfootball.com. Call us to be writer Dan Weber about this USC football team. Two weeks of spring practice down, three more to go. We had a little spring break in there and we gave Dan a little bit of a break. We got him back on the show. He's got a lot of questions uh, you guys have sent in to Dan over the past week or two. So we're going to try to get to each and every one of them. If you have a question for us, podcast at uscfootball.com. That is our email address. You can leave us a voicemail. Give us a call. 641-715-3900. Then do extension eight one six six four six. Or go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page. You can leave a voicemail right from your computer or your device. You can also go to itunes.com slash peristylepodcast. Subscribe to the channel. Give us a review. Five-star rating. All that stuff helps the show. Makes you feel good about yourself. Makes you feel like you have a good day. Of course, subscribing and get it right to your phone or your iPod, any of those things you can get the, uh, you can get the podcast directly to you every time we put up a new episode. All right. Well, let's bring in Dan Weber. Uh, what's up, Dan? How are you doing today?
1: Doing pretty good. Uh, at least, uh, now I feel like, uh, having seen the, uh, scrimmage Saturday, we can answer some of those questions. I think we would have been throwing things up against the wall a little bit. Having hit, not had hit that first scrimmage, it was only their third day in Pad. So I think we uh, we can feel like we know a lot more than we did before Saturday. A lot like Clay Helton, who had you know a big smile on his face, and I think he was uh, convinced that okay, now I have a real feel for this team after Saturday scrimmage.
0: Yeah, I mean at least we had a better view, Dan, and we talked to uh, <laughs> Coach Harvey Hyde. It was funny. I thought. You know, coach Harvey Hyde can go on these rants every once in a while his month our Monday podcast he went on a bit of a rant um, some people liked it some people didn't but it was uh, you know the bathrooms there wasn't there was only what you know one bathroom open so you had to wait in line to go to the bathroom one at a time and um, he you know he wanted to see more plays and stuff I guess what was going on there but what were your overall thoughts of the scrimmage I
1: thought I like it's it's workman like and it's efficient I thought I didn't const- See, I don't see any busted plays either way. I didn't see any busted coverages on defense. Uh, didn't look like there were any breakdowns. You didn't see any of the, uh, you know, the whiffs that uh, happen at the line of scrimmage every single game last year. Uh, uh, you didn't see him drop the ball and then put it on the ground. Um, you just, you know, you didn't see um, all of those things that you might think. Wow, you know, it's just the third practice and pads and all that, they look, you know, much more, uh, much farther along, which is what, you know, Clay said. And I think they are no gimmicks. They're not trying to fool you, uh, but they did a lot of little smart things. I think the way they're using the F back group, which is uh, the converted linebacker, Ruben uh, Peters and Daniel Amater baby, who, Really has got some athleticism and Taylor McNamara, who I think we knew was pretty athletic. Uh, and those are, they're using them interchangeably and sometimes all three of them in the game at the same time, sometimes two. And the way they are uh, motioning them, uh, I, I don't know that you're going to be able to set your defense even if you see all three of them in the game. I still don't think you know, okay, this is what they're going to do. And I, I think there was that kind of a giveaway a lot of times uh, under under both Lane and Sark in terms of, you know, personnel grouping. So I just thought they were doing smart stuff, and they were doing physical tough stuff. I mean, they didn't stop running inside, for example. <clears throat> and the longer they went, I thought, you know, the better they got. And they're running, you know, Ronald Jones, for example, inside, in, inside the guards. And uh, I like that. I mean, you're going to – if you're a safety playing against USC – when you see Ronald Jones, you know, coming up inside, you have to take a step up or two. Just because of the fact that if he beats a linebacker, you know, he's running right down your throat. But the good news there is you get those safeties coming up to help against the run. That's when your play action passes, you know, a passing game that hasn't really been that effective in recent years, that's when that kicks in. So, and that's kind of good old fashioned USC football. Although if you had to, you know, say what were they doing, it looked like it was a little, a little bit of Western Kentucky, a little bit of Stanford, and a little bit of USC that we're, we're used to seeing. But it didn't look like a hodgepodge like it'd been thrown together. It looked like it all kind of worked together smoothly. And, uh, I really like that. I think, you know, these kids are, are getting coached up and, uh, you know, they're sticking to what they believe. And convince them, you know, let's get better a little bit every day. Just keep working at it, working at it. Get the technique down. You know, just, you know, emphasis on technique and uh, not on, you know, oh, we ran 108 plays today. I, I do remember we probably should have asked Sark when he would come out and say we ran 108 plays today. You would have, you wanted to say how many did you run right? <laughs> and we didn't always. You know, it was such a big change. And and then we were still, okay, this is, you're committed to doing this. And they were committed to doing it all the way through the Fresno State game of the first year. And then they weren't committed to doing it anymore. And it was like, no, I think this team looks like under these coaches that they're not only committed to doing it, they're actually going to do it. And so I think those were all pluses. I was... uh, I was uh, pretty
0: upbeat about what we saw uh, Saturday. Uh, that's, I think, a good segue to uh, what Theo's question was, because he had a question about coaching and kind of doing some comparisons. Um, he wanted to know what you thought the job, how about BKU and Johnny Nansen were doing, and how do you think the overall coaching uh, job has been has doing compared to the last three regimes? He says, thanks, Ryan. You and the whole team at Scout are phenomenal, and I appreciate all you guys do. Fight on from Theo.
1: Well, I think it's easy to kind of compare them to the regime in between, you know, Sark and Lane, because uh, you got five of those guys who are coaching them now, and that was obviously, you know, the best coached uh, group that we'd seen, although you got to give them credit. Once they figured things out in 2011 uh, and realized that if we run behind Matt Khalil and Red Ellison and uh, Ross Cumming, very much like, you know, they're doing this year, we've got a chance, so... Uh, I mean, I like what I'm seeing, that that what we're seeing is the best of the kind of coaching you've had over the last five years that's been pretty much hit and miss. I mean, essentially, I think you had two head coaches who really wanted to be play callers, really wanted to be offensive coordinators. Now I think you've got a head coach who really wants to be a head coach, and he wants to be somebody who coaches his coaches, you know, but encourages and basically requires them to do the coaching that, you know, that the position coaches are really in charge of their positions. And, you know, I like that a lot. I think BKU is probably the oldest 30-year-old in college football. He, he has the mindset, I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference between him and Neil Calloway. Uh, you know, and, and that's probably a good thing that your offensive line coach, your defensive line coach are the kind of tough, tough best taskmasters and, you know, the real hard nosed guys. I, I mean, that's where football starts. It starts up front. And uh, it's a physical game. You've got to hit somebody. You've got to move them out of there. And uh, I think those guys both, you know, believe in that. So I really like, uh, and I think what we're hearing back from the kids, we're hearing after the scrimmage, they were talking to one another. You know, we weren't allowed to talk to them, but hearing back from people who were talking to the kids they're really impressed with this staff in terms of the way this staff interacts with them and the way they uh care about them and the way you know they're just there's just a different uh chemistry going on between the coaches and uh and the players even though these guys are probably tougher on them uh i just think uh i'm very upbeat about you know the way this this coaching staff has come in and, and what they're doing
0: so far. All right. Uh, good stuff there. Thanks for that. And um, let's go to Garrett in Seattle. He says, it seems to me from your practice write-ups that Max Brown is always going first, uh, assuming with the first stringers and is also getting more reps than Sam Darnold and Jalen Green. I have nothing against Max, but if the coaches are, say, are saying the spot is open and they will have to compete for the start to be the starting quarterback, wouldn't it make sense to have, the quarterbacks alternate who goes first and gets an equal amount of reps to show what they can do. And also what message are you sending them by doing things this way? It might seem uh, to them like the choice has already been made. And the talk of competing for the spot is that just talk your thoughts. Thanks and fight on Garrett in Seattle.
1: You know, I mean, you can look at that, uh, that way. And having covered you know some <clears throat> NFL camps and things like that, the veteran guy, is the guy that's getting in the system is the guy, and he gets the first it's asked it would be asking a lot, for example, every time to run Sam out there. I think Sam is getting a better deal now because because of the number of injuries I don't know what it is, probably seven or eight uh guys who would normally be on the the two deeps, and not just injuries the dory uh out uh because of track and you know and all that I would say going against the second group defense is probably a much better way for Sam to be introduced to what's going on. Going against that first group, and that's a, that's a, that's a big, big challenge. Uh, so, so I think actually, this is the better way to do it. You ease, you know, Sam essentially wasn't here last spring, uh, last fall, he was a scout team guy. So I think, I think this is the way to do it. I think it's a, it's more of a challenge. Like if you go to the scrimmage side, you say, wow, Sam had this and he did that. Well, he's doing it, you know, against, uh, some third teamers and scout guys to, you know, to some extent. Whereas, you know, Max is going against, uh, guys who can really, really, uh, shut you down. So, so I think that's the fair way to go right now. I think the hardest thing for them to do is to get, uh, Jalen Green enough reps because he got some things he can do. And I think he's got some things they want him to be able to do. So getting the, the, you know, the mix right, I think is is the key thing. But, but I I think if you've got a guy who's here for his fourth spring in Max Brown, who was the number one, you know, drop back quarterback in the country when he came out of, you know, out of uh, high school and you've got another kid who's got all kinds of, you know, impressive talent and, you know, ability and, uh, what have you and Sam? Uh, but it's his first spring. I think I think the balance is pretty good. Uh, it's just uh, how do you get a third guy in there, and then um, and you give Max uh, Max you know, think a, a year to get, you know, he'll be the you know the scout team guy and a year to grow up and all that. So you're not. I you don't think they're pressed that much. Although they got him some throws in there the other day as well. Uh, they're they they're obviously aware of it and thinking about it and working at it. And I think Sam did get at least one series. You can correct me, Ron, uh, with the first group. He so, did, yeah. So so, no. so, so I think they're doing a pretty good job, to be honest. I, I don't. It would be probably counterintuitive if you said it's completely open between a fourth-year Max Brown and a first-time around Sam Darnold. That that is that, not the way it is. That's not reality. Um, but you still say. It's up for grabs. So yeah. You're giving Sam a chance, uh, but uh, and I think he's playing better than we could have expected him to at this point. But up to where we saw his ability was, I mean, it was the day he stepped on the field last summer. Everybody, including uh, Ricky Town, said, "Uh-oh, <laughs> this guy's really good," and he was he was better than we than we thought he was going to be. He's going to be better, I think, than we thought. He maybe could be. And uh, and that's a really good thing. But does that mean he should get, you know, go first over Max? I don't think so. Not yet.
0: Yeah, I think I mean there's a pecking order, but it's still a competition. And I you know, Clay Heldon's addressed that and made it clear He's like, look, Max Brown should be ahead. It's his fourth year in the program. Uh, but it was nice to see Sam Darrell in a scrimmage situation running the first team and then they let Jalen Green come in and kind of run the second team. So they, they kind of took Max Brown out for a series and then, and let those other guys come in and step up and step up one notch and see what they could do. And Sam dartle actually threw, I think he threw a touchdown pass to might've been a JNA Harris or something, but he, you know, he yep. ended up getting a touchdown on his drive with the first team.
1: Yeah, no, he, he, uh, so he has to be ready. I mean, the challenge they've got is they really need to have two quarterbacks ready to lead this team. Uh, when they go into Alabama, September 3rd, I mean, they, uh, they both better be ready to play. So, So, you know, they're not benefited by not giving Sam as much work as they can possibly give him. Uh, So, you know, it'll be fun to watch. I wouldn't look at it as a negative. I'd look at it as a positive. I mean, I think there are a couple of ways you can look at it. I'd look at it as, wow, Sam is more ready, more talented, and going to get more, you know, work than we thought. And that's probably a really good thing. There are a lot of, you know, but that doesn't mean that that's a negative to Max and, and people kind of like it's a zero sum game where if Sam is better than Max can't be, you know, no, Max can be better as well. It's it's a much more challenging role that Max is taking on right now to to go first and to go against the, you know, the first defense. I mean, they're doing things that we haven't seen defenses do in practice. They're coming at you from places we haven't seen them come, come at you. They're coming at you with people that can really, you know, come and get you, and I think that's a great thing. But it's uh, it's a challenge. It's, this is not an easy easy role. Uh, you know that Max is uh, you know taking on out there with the, with the one.
0: Speaking of guys coming out of uh, different places and, and getting get a little pressure on the quarterback, our next question is from uh, Irvin. He wants to know uh, Wally Batiku and Port Augusta how they've looked at practice. So he says, "Fight on." Uh,
1: I think of Wally. He looks like, you know, physically, he looks like if you would have, you know, gone into the lab and said, let's make somebody that looks perfect to, you know, play this spot, play the eggs, come, you know, in a hurry, uh, run by people and all that. There's no He's just, he's amazing. Now, Porter looks like uh, he's now above 260. And he looks like, because he's having to cut up his uniform pants because they don't, kind of looks like the Hulk, you know, when he's coming like busted out of his clothes, you know. Uh, so you've got two really physically imposing guys. Jabari Ruffin isn't bad, and, and also when he gets in there, and Uchenna, I mean, they've got some really, really imposing people. I think it would be uh, asking a lot other, you know, to, for uh, Batiko to be considered for more than just a specialty role. As an outside rusher, edge rusher, and, and, I mean, it's only his, uh, you know, two and a half years of football right now. So, so that that might be asking a lot, but um, you're going to give him a lot of chances to to be that guy. I think with Porter, you're really looking for him to be much more sophisticated, much more um, ability to adjust to how people are going to block him. I mean, I thought the first play of the scrimmage, they ran a sweep away and he just ran it down from behind. He just took off and we would have never seen that last year. I mean, I just think those are the kinds of plays you want to see, you know, from him and he's making them and uh, he likes it. According to him, it's so much simpler this year and, you know, their responsibilities and and what they're asking them to do, you know, they're, they're not caught in between and, you know do we this or do we that uh, it's very clear cut <clears throat> in Clancy's defense, and I think that's really going to help the young guys and the really athletic guys. I think you know that there's a way that Clancy enables those guys to use their ability and uh i think they I think they will but uh I think all the i don't think we should be saying he's the immediate future at that spot, even though he's He's an amazing, you know, looking athlete, and he really works hard. I mean, that's one of the, and maybe we're, we don't know how fast he can come, how far he can come, because we really, you know, maybe we don't understand how hard he works. I mean, we, we see it, but we don't know what the result of that's going to be. But, uh, he's got a great future ahead of him. And he's just, he's, uh, he's special.
0: Um, keeping with the defense, Tarek had a couple of questions. Our buddy Tarek, he said, if USC uses nickel and dime packages as Clay Hilton has stated, do you expect, who do you expect to be the primary down lineman? And then if cam, uh, if cam Smith isn't ready to go in the fall, who's going to be, uh, who would make the best backup for him?
1: Good questions. Um, I would guess that, um, green has to be in there. He will, he will, it doesn't matter what they're going to do. He's in there. Um, you know, they're, they're very fortunate. The pipeline of the Leonard Williams and you know look-alike guys is, is coming along, and uh, I think he's uh, he's uh, you know what Leonard was when Leonard was a sophomore playing for uh, for Clancy, uh, or excuse me, a freshman playing for Clancy two years ago. Uh, uh, at the other side, I, I you look at uh, Jacob Daniel and uh, Noah Jefferson. I think they're expecting Noah back this week. Uh, at the very most, miss another week with his back issues, but, uh, you know, nothing showed up on the MRI, the CAT scan. So, so I think those two guys, uh, might share that other position. But, uh, but, <clears throat> there is going to be a lot of competition. I mean, if you figure 10 of the 12 games are going to play nickel, uh, primarily, that's just two down linemen. So you've got six guys now and seven and eight when they get, um, uh, uh, you know, the fall guys in uh, Connor Murphy and Joshua too, So I think it'd be a lot of competition to to get on the field and they probably are going to be able to, to rotate a good bit, which, you know, if they're, as hard as they're going to ask them to go, uh, that probably is a good thing. But, uh, but I think they're in, in pretty decent shape the, the games they've got to place three guys, which <laughs> unfortunately are the Alabama game and the Stanford game. Uh, That'll be, uh, that'll be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, I would guess it would be there. Rasheem Green, uh, Jacob Daniel, and Noah Jefferson. But uh, uh, then how do they line up after that? I think that's where <coughs> the depth thing maybe is something you've got to watch a little bit.
0: Um, Irvin had another defensive question. He wanted to know who is the new defensive line consultant.
1: Oh, Pete Jenkins. Yeah, he's a great guy, uh, kind of a uh, famous. Uh, I think he's seventy-four now, and he was a you know big-time D-line coach and and D-coordinator in the Southeastern Conference. I think most notably at LSU, where he hit, produced some just absolutely great players. And very close to Ed Orgeron, and when Ed got the you know interim head job two years ago, he brought uh, brought Pete in to take his place, and then so Pete became an on-the-field coach. Uh, but he also uh, uh, had a stint toward the end of his career, three or four years, with the Philadelphia Eagles, where he did a great job. Just one of the most respected uh, D-line coaches in America, and uh, I know he's got family in in LA, so uh, it gives him a chance to, uh, you know, to come out, spend some time with them. I think uh, he's on contract through the end of the uh, end of the spring. I think it's just a really, it's just one of the many smart things they've done, uh, in stamping up to, to give him, he's not allowed to coach on the field, but he can watch and he can watch film and he can work with, uh, uh, you know, BKU after practice. And, uh, I just think, you know, when you got a, you know, first year coach and somebody like, uh, Pete Jenkins, uh, it is, again, a very, very smart move by USC
0: um we have a question this is for our buddy in the south um let me pull it up here uh it's uh brian and beham checking in so he's the usc fan down in sec country and i don't know if you um this I'll, I'll read the tweet that came with this but i think he wrote this about a week or so ago will chris edmondson be enrolling this upcoming season see that he's a preferred walk-on from texas with his frame he may be able to play fullback what do you think and, uh, he is a, so he tweeted out, I think a week or two ago, that he's a USC commit. Um, he is from the state of Texas and, uh, you know, basically said he's going to be a preferred walk on, um, at USC. So I don't know if you had heard about that, Dan, um, or anything or what your thoughts are. Cause they, they seem to have a different philosophy towards the fullbacks now that Silva Vanuku and Jaleel Pinner are, are no longer there.
1: Yeah. I think everybody probably has to kind of take a different look at fullbacks now because you just don't see guys in high school. I mean, who has a a high school fullback that, you know, you would say, wow, that kid could play at, you know, USC or Stanford or Alabama. You just don't see that. I mean, uh, if they're that big, big enough and athletic enough, they're playing linebacker or defensive end. Or uh, if they're really, you know, say 220 and got speed and they're 62 or whatever, they're, they're still a tailback. So, I the theory has to be now is you have to find and create your tailbacks. I mean, excuse me, your fullbacks or your F-backs, as USC's calling them. And, uh, and so, you know, you find that one linebacker in the program who, you know, can be the, you know, just the, the guy who's just going to take somebody out at the line of scrimmage. Uh, you, uh, develop tight ends to be m- way more Athletic and, and and find those guys that are comfortable, uh, you know, in the backfield, uh, lining up as eight back types, or, uh, you know, playing, uh, you know, at the end of the line of scrimmage like Stanford uses their guys, and um, I think again it's going to be more of a find them and create them, and then you scholarship them, and um, because the skill set just isn't being, you know, you don't see it in high school anymore, so it's almost probably not very worthwhile to go out and say you're going to be able to find them in terms of they're already at that position you have to find guys that are playing other positions and give them a chance and see if they're the guy so i don't know almost anything about other than the name the kid from texas but that sounds like the way you're probably going to have to do things you know in the future in terms of developing that position but i think now we didn't, I don't think we knew exactly what they were talking about, how they were going to use that position. But now that you see that it's an interchangeable position, the guy's got to be able to catch the ball. They want him to be, you know, where they have to honor him when he comes out of the backfield, but he's got to be a guy who they can move around, uh, who's comfortable, you know, in that position and who can play in there with, with a couple of tight ends as well. So again, you're not going to find that guy in high school. I think you're basically going to have to create him, you know, on your practice field. And uh, you can find, you know, a couple of walk ons a year who may have the ability to do that. And then you, you just see what happens. And then uh, hopefully you've got a scholarship for him. So that's uh,
2: I think that's a very
1: smart way to go right now.
0: And uh, we had another follow-up. What do you think of John Houston so far?
1: Um, a good question. <clears throat> uh, he is athletic. I mean, he's. I mean, now you can see why he was a was a, uh, a five star kid coming out of high school. He is athletic. Uh, those back uh, little stress fractures in his back, you know, clearly held him up. So he's more like a kid just coming out of high school right now. So you can see the athleticism. Uh, you can see him run to the football. You can see why they said, "Okay, this might be a guy." Who can do some of the same things Sue Cravens could do, a little bigger, six uh, three and you know two twenty to twenty five, but uh, but I think he I think we need to see him more to see where he fits and how they get to using. But they've got six months to get him ready, and he's kind of a wild card, you know, kind of a one of those guys that's just sitting there, and and then we're going to see where he ends up. But he's an awfully good. Awfully good athlete, seems like a great kid. And, uh, you know, he had a tough, tough fall to have to just, you know, endure the stress factors that wouldn't let him do anything. Uh, but uh, he said he's 100% now and, and ready to go. Now he's just got to catch up. But uh, but he can run, he can get places. And um, he, I, I, what I'm not sure is what's his frame going to look like. He's kind of a lean, you know, 6'3", a little over 220, whatever, right now but where is he going to end up you know is he going to stay there uh or is he going to you know be up in you know the 235 pound range uh, eventually and um I'm not sure how that works out and that'll probably determine where he ends up but I do like it that they're using the smaller guys inside and they're hiding them behind the tackles and they're using you know Michael Hutchings and Quentin Powell and they're moving them on every play I mean they're sending them so in some ways, being slimmer and uh, able to run places might be the way they want at least one of those guys on the inside to play. So, so, so I don't think we can give you a really good answer right now as to where he's going to end up, but he's got some real potential.
0: Uh, Kevin in South Orange County wrote in and said, I haven't heard much on this topic. Will the team huddle up this year or do that fake no huddle like the past two years?
1: That's a good question. I'm not, I don't think we even know for sure. Exactly. I think they will at some, Uh, but uh, the way that, I mean, because the, the the scrimmage is scripted and all that, I don't think we've actually, I mean, the first day they ran some offense. I don't think we even knew for sure they were going to run with the big signs. So I think that's, uh, that's kind of evolving. I would guess, not much huddle uh, but with the ability to huddle uh, but that's something to keep our eyes on I don't think we and, and maybe you know they're determining which is um, which works better and you know which is more comfortable uh, but uh, I don't know I wish I I wish I could tell you for sure that I know from what they're doing right now don't know for sure
0: yeah we just don't know yet there's a lot of a lot of questions so we'll we'll keep watching and let you know what we see and what Clay Hilton tells us and give you what, give you our thoughts. Um, Chris wrote in, said, so what kind of strength and conditioning strategy does coach Ivan Lewis implement during spring camp and how does it compare to the Big Ten and SEC schools? And has there been an official search for a new nutrition specialist for the team? Thanks, uh, Ryan. Thanks, Dan. Fight on from Chris. I
1: think they. I mean, I think they started a certain, I mean, I guess the problem we've got is, I'm not sure who exactly does it uh, in terms of replacing the uh, the nutrition guy. I, mean, I thought it was a really good move to add a nutrition guy specifically for football uh, this fall. Uh, and I guess the, the, you know they got him from the Eagles, and I guess the Eagles thought it was a really good move too because they hired him back. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't realize as many NFL teams had nutrition guys as they do now. Uh, so that makes it a, a little tighter market um you know to find one of those uh find a a good guy i mean for years i don't think the nfl had had nutrition guys um and that was probably not a good thing those guys were on their own but uh uh my guess is to go and find somebody who's doing a really good job in uh in college and you hire them away uh whether you do it During spring, I mean, do you want, you know, Clay spending his time, as important as that job is, do you want Clay spending his time there or do you want him just coaching him up through the end of spring and then get it done then? Uh, They've done some pretty good things when you look at it. I mean, uh, if you see that uh, Zach Banner's lost 30 pounds, Damian Mama's down to 320, so he's lost 35 or so. Um, uh, Chad Wheeler's gotten uh, he probably picked up 30, 35 pounds that he needed. So they're moving some of those guys in the right direction. Um, I think uh, uh, Ronald Jones is up to 195 and started at 185 uh, last uh, summer. So I, mean, I like the the general look of things, but um, that they really do need to find that guy to bring him in. As far as Ivan, I know they still left during uh, – spring ball, they, you know, when they're going alternate days and all that. But uh, um, I, mean, I I don't know that what they do is all that much different, you know, from anybody else. Uh, but uh, they adjust, obviously, if you're practicing, you're not doing, you know, what you're doing in the winter. Uh, but uh, I think they're working at it pretty, pretty well. I mean, Ivan is a, you know, disciple of, uh, uh, what of Oh gosh. Who's our guy at the sea? Yeah, Chris, uh,
0: Chris Thompson Carlo
1: at the Seahawks. And so it's not all that different, you know, from what he did and more motion. Um, uh, I think they're doing more football specific stuff. They're doing more, uh, the kind of thing where they incorporate football drills with lifting drills and strength drills, so that they do the two together. And, um, And they do more specific stuff just for your position. So, I mean, I like all of those, uh, all of those developments. So, but, uh, but I I think the strength and conditioning stuff during spring ball isn't, isn't the focus. It's a matter of, you know, keeping, keeping up and then they'll have a chance to get back to it really strong, you know, in May, June, July. And then they're back into, practice and uh it's more on a on a maintenance uh you know uh you know regimen than it is uh you know a big time push to to build and
0: and add uh dan so we're gonna have we have a uh it's been going a little while okay we have a few other topics that i wanted to get into outside of spring football you ready to, to tackle some of those yeah let's go okay so this one is on uh kind of pro day stuff and um we'll go we'll go to john and he says i'm going to spend my entire spring break listening to the podcast and reading the articles on uscfootball.com thanks for the in-depth coverage this comment questions for dan weber In an article about his nfl combine interview sue craven said that he quoted i've been asked if i'm a prima donna i don't get uh, i get that coming from usc people think a lot of usc guys are entitled I'm just a fan, and this was upsetting to me. I can only imagine how upsetting it is for a player or a coach to hear that this is how the program he is now viewed by others. It makes me angry knowing how hard someone like Sua worked while at USC. Do you think that the current coaching staff and the current roster of players can actually put an end to this, quote-unquote, prima donna reputation, whether it is deserved or not? Thanks for all you do. Uh, fight on, John and Brea.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's the worst thing in the world. I mean, if you have, for example, uh, you know, the most first round draft picks and the most overall number ones and the most uh, uh pro football hall of famers and the most overall draft picks and all that, which is the case with USC. Yeah. You're probably going to get a reputation, uh, you know, earned or not. For example, I don't think uh Marcus Allen was a, was a prima donna and he's probably as good an example of uh, uh, of a USC player um, you know who kind of represents the program uh, at large right now and yet you have uh, you know you have other other people who, uh, who do maybe have that reputation a little bit and, and it's, it's part of the, the issue of if you really become famous in college you know Matt Liner, Reggie Bush Uh, it's easy for people to say, oh, you know, they're prima donnas. You come in with a Heisman Trophy. Uh, You almost can't do enough in the NFL to equal what you did in college. I don't know that anybody ever said, you know, Carson Palmer is a prima donna. He might be, you know, one of the, you know, most soft-spoken, hardest-working guys who's just done nothing but overcome everything that he's ever had to overcome. Um, so, I don't think that's. For example, when um, uh, Sue is answering that, he's smiling and laughing. Sua likes being a prima donna in a way. I mean, you know, there's a good way you can look at that, and a bad way. And Sua doesn't mind being a prima donna. Now, you know, the answer is you've got to, you know, step up to the challenge. And uh, but, and USC guys. To some extent, I guess haven't overachieved maybe as much recently, and that's uh, that's what this class is going to have a chance to do, because they're not, you know, as much expected of them. So you want to just go in there and work hard and uh, and uh, you know overachieve. I mean, for example, let's take I would guess the most recent uh, career of a guy who. You know, is identified, you know, completely with USC would be Troy Palomalu. Was he a prima donna? I don't think so. But did people, you know, focus on him in every single game he ever played? Uh, yeah. And was he, uh, you know, did he have all the star quality in the whole world? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, you know, I, I didn't look at that as that big a deal, uh, or as that much of an insult. Uh, I, I just didn't. I didn't look at it, but I think it does indicate, you know, there maybe are some areas you want to just see USC kids show up, work hard, and get the job done.
0: Uh, we have this one. Thanks for that, Dan. We have this one from another Dan, Dan from 1962. He says, I was hard sorry to hear about the passing of Gary Jeter. He was such a stalwart on the defensive line in the 70s. I would appreciate knowing who you guys feel are the stalwart defensive linemen on this year's squad. Who has the ability to be our Gary Jeter, Leonard Williams, or Cedric Ellis? Thanks, as always, for giving us such great insight into USC football on the podcast. Well,
1: I think Rasheem Green has that just that extra something. Uh, somebody was mentioning the fact the other day that he was standing next to Leonard. And at 6'5", he's a little bigger than Leonard. And, uh, and uh, at 285, 290 now, he's just really cut. He just has that look. You look at him, and um, it's why I, I wonder about some USC people who say, "Gosh, how are we even going to stay on the field with you know Alabama?" Our guys look like high school kids compared, you know, and all that. And you just think, "What are you? You know, are you paying attention? Come on, guys! Uh, USC's got some guys that look like they can play with anybody, and uh, you know, Jacob Daniel, Noah Jefferson. Um, there aren't a lot of guys." going into their basically, you know, first spring <clears throat> anywhere in the country that look any better on the field than those three guys do. So so I think, you know, there are, you know, they've got a lot of young potential talent athletes that, that could be really, really special. And um, and but but I think you have to put Rasheen Green first. He just there's something about his he's got a burst, he's got a look, um, He's, uh, he, uh, I think he could be uh, really special.
0: We had a couple of people write in, Dan, um, about the Todd McNair stuff, uh, about California. We had Earl in West L.A. and John Umbrea. California Supreme Court rejected NCAA's request to hear a Todd McNair case, a case uh, manage, uh, management hearing in L.A. Superior Court. is scheduled for May. Will this, they want, well, Earl wants to know, will this hearing determine when the lawsuit will proceed to trial?
1: I think that's the ca I think it'll mostly determine um what's gonna happen in terms of discovery and deposition. And I think it's gonna be really interesting, uh, the way uh Todd's attorneys are going to proceed in terms of interviewing, for example, I think seven of the eight surviving committee on infractions people who voted in the USC case have not been interviewed yet. And so I think they better, you know, put on their asbestos suits for those uh, those interviews because, com- you know, I just get the sense that uh, it is not going to be patty cake um, because of what they did to somebody willing to just throw his life away in order to take USC down. Um, and they went along with people who were lying and, you know, breaking the NCAA rules and, uh, and they didn't do anything to stop it. So, you know, these are, you know, some fairly famous law professors and what have you and they're they're going to be coming after them. Uh it'll also be interesting to see what other kinds of discovery that they can come up with it was fairly limited in scope um previously uh now I think it'll be wider in scope. I mean they they'll be arguing over that every single uh you know person, every single deposition, every single kind of discovery but but I think um you know Todd's attorneys—they have a good bit to get together with themselves in terms of figuring out where do we go, how do we get there, uh, how you know, how do we do this, and then when they get to court, <clears throat> come up with this is what we plan to do. We're going to talk to you know this, 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 and this, and <clears throat> we'll see. One would think the NCA will probably object to every single one of those, and uh, and there'll there'll be a battle over. How that you know how that exactly gets done, but uh, but I think that's that's what develops uh, over the next uh, few months. What I'm going to be interested in is when the, when Penn State was uh, involved and the uh, two state legislatures and pe- legislators in Pennsylvania were suing the NCAA. Once they were getting, for example, um, some of the emails, those things became public. And the NCA almost immediately had to say, "Oh, oh, wait a minute, it was indefensible." When the NCA said, in one of the emails, they said something like, oh, "We have no no NCA legislation or bylaws. We don't have any authority to do what we're going to do. We're just going to do it, and we'll bluff our way through it." Well, as soon as that became public, the NCA had to throw up their hands and say, "Okay, okay, okay, we give, you win." Uh, Will there be any moments like that? How is that going to work? I don't know. Uh, you know, would, they, would Todd McNair's people say, you know what? We'll just take them to trial, the way the Aaron Andrews case went, and we'll just see what happens at trial. And so we don't need to go public with it. We'll be fine if we just put it in front of a <clears throat> of a jury in Los Angeles and let them decide. Uh, so <clears throat> I wish I could tell you, you know how they're going to go, but I don't think the decisions have been made. I don't, you know, the, the judge hasn't decided. We don't know what the NCA is going to object to. We don't know what the strategy of Todd's lawyers are going to be, but it will be interesting to see how that plays out and, and, and observe what, what exactly is going on. Uh, should be an interesting few months.
0: And uh John wrote in too. He said, uh Todd McNair is his hero. So. Um, he's just having a hard time moving on. He said, that's why Todd McNair is my hero. At least I can experience some sort of redemption through him and his fight against the NCAA. <laughs>
1: yeah, he is. I mean, he really is. He didn't, you know, he could have just gone away maybe and said, I'll make the best of it. And How can I fight these guys? But uh, as we remember, the first time we sat down with him in July of uh, 2010, after the ruling came down, and he was sitting there saying, He just couldn't believe it. I mean, how me, why me, what they picked me out, you know, what, and it turns out they needed somebody and he was the only one that could even remotely, you know, tie to it. So they did, but, um, uh, you know, he is a hero for USC and, uh, he is, uh, uh, you know, one of those living definitions of of fight on and you wish, you know, that there could be a place for Todd at USC, you know, from now on, maybe there will be
0: still more to determine from all of that. So it's pretty interesting. Okay. We got one last more, one last question. Uh, it's on basketball and this actually came about a week ago after, uh, you had a take in the, uh, war room, uh, on the basketball team. And then since then there's been a bunch of news. Of course, in the Indian field, signed an extension, uh, three players who looked like they were going to have some playing time issues going forward or transferring out of the program, which might not be a bad thing when, when people are leaving because of playing time, but uh, I'll play this voicemail question for you and Dan, and then get your take. Here you go.
2: Hi, this statement is for Dan, uh, Dan Weber. Um, this is Daniel out of Los Angeles. Uh, love the Perry style. I'll listen to you guys every chance I get. I just had a quick statement on the, uh, the statement that Dan left in the, uh, the war room. I, Thought he was kind of hard on the Trojan team. I think they did really, really good this year. I see where he coming, where he's coming from from the uh, the losses they started to uh, have at, towards the end of the season, and this loss they had uh, in the NCAA. I mean, if you think about the past three years, three seasons that USC had, I mean, look at their record; they've been terrible. I mean, the jump this far, uh, this soon is really, really good. And they're a losing team that needs to learn how to win. And uh, I, I played sports. I played on high school teams, you know, college and. No, things like that. So once the team uh, gets the taste of winning, they're will they most likely going to work harder this summer to uh, improve on their deficiencies uh, that they have throughout the year. But they're going to get better. But, I mean, when a team has never won and all of a sudden they get a little taste of winning, they will tend to mess up, and this happens. So, I mean, I'm not going to really down them uh, for what happened this season uh but now heading into this season, there will be some expectations. everyone now sees the talent and u s c will be on notice. so if this happens again, then yes, I think we'll start questioning uh questioning uh einfield but until then i I think they did a really good uh job this season, and you know the, the coming from where they were the past three years uh so fight on go u s c yeah
1: i i agree the team i thought the team did a did a good job. I didn't think they got enough help. I mean, I think, I think it's a false comparison to say, wow, they were really awful year one and year two, and this year they weren't, and they really won a lot more games. Well, they should have won a lot more games. They were a lot better than everybody they beat. I mean, pretty much. So, you know, the Arizona game, you could flip a coin. They were going sideways, uh, for much of the year. But, uh, uh, I, I, I think it was unfair to say, Oh, they only won you know three games in the league or a year ago and this year they won you know whatever uh, nine ten counting the tournament but uh, uh, just because they were you know worse last year than they should have been I don't think that makes this year that much better um, I do have high expectations if you're at the University of Southern California in the middle of really the best basketball recruiting area in the country I mean if you're watching uh Oh, uh, Virginia the other day, and their point guard, you know, hitting threes is a kid from Los Angeles. And you just see, you know, Los Angeles kids everywhere. You ought to recruit well. You can say, oh, well, but they weren't. Yeah, but they had, you know, some of the worst coaching decisions ever, you know, in Kevin O'Neal, you know, to run the program. So uh, just because they were so absolutely clueless and awful, doesn't mean that you shouldn't come in here and really do well. And they've got a great staff for recruiting. I mean, they recruit. They're doing a great job. I think it's helped them that for a year or so, UCLA got really sidetracked and passed on all the LA kids. And, and I, you know, when I was at SID at Xavier, I saw that happen in Cincinnati where we were started to get all the good players in Cincinnati because the University of Cincinnati started acting like they were a national powerhouse and they wouldn't recruit the local kids. I think UCLA has done some of that. So that's helped a little bit at this point. Uh, but this team has to learn how to win, and they got to learn how, for example, uh, when they're playing the early part of the season and you're playing teams once and they're not in your league and they don't scout you and all that much, USC's talent has a tendency to, to just overwhelm them in depth and they can shoot the ball they can run and jump. Uh, and then they get into the league schedule, and I think that's where it's crucial as to what kind of job the coach is doing and you get people who really know what you can't do and what they don't want to let you do and how to stop you and you have to be able to counter that you have to be able to force games into the you know the style of game that you want it to be and the, the style of game you've got a better chance you see not a very good half-court team offensively or defensively they need to get it into a you know, a transition game, a full court game. And I don't think they, they worked hard enough and smart enough at doing that. They, most of the time, much of the time, they were able to be slowed down so that they played at somebody else's tempo. Uh, I didn't think they were, you know, sound enough defensively and, and rebounding the ball and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I still would have said, you know, bring Andy bring Andy back probably wouldn't have given him a two-year extension on his contract at this point but uh, but I I would like to see him uh, do a better job for example with their their big guys I'd like to coach those guys up better they really aren't very fundamentally sound Uh, I think they you know they need to play you know better man-to-man they're they're good at uh, overplaying and they're good at you know, trap switching and trapping and, uh, you know, playing the ball and knocking it loose and all that. But they also have to be, you know, more sound when they get into the half court game. I just think there are a lot of things that you want to see them from the beginning of the year to the end of the year get better at. I don't think that happened this year. And with a young team with talent and with depth, that really probably should happen. Uh, so I just think, I think we all, should have high expectations for this program. I mean, it's uh, the only program in America that's a mile and a half from two NBA franchises. It's the program that will get, I mean, when uh, O.J. Mayo was here, for example, and they had that run with Damar and, and, uh, you know, Nick and those guys, you can have 25 NBA scouts at a Saturday game, you know. Um, You've got so much to offer people. Play basketball at USC, and so I think the uh, I think the expectations ought to be really high, and uh, people ought to you know not govern what we think USC could be or should be, based on how bad they were a couple of years ago. College basketball does not take uh three four years to get back. I mean, I think your second year you ought to be going in the right direction. I mean, I was I covered Kentucky when. Uh, They got hit with the NCAA sanctions, and people left, and they were, you know, all kinds of issues, and they were at their lowest. And I think we got, Kentucky got beat 150 to 75 one day by by Kansas. And under Rick Pitino, but by year two, they really really were good. They knew what they were doing, how they were going to do it. In the same way, uh, I think you could just see that happening when you get a good coach at a good program or at a program, by the second year, they ought to be moving in the right direction. By the third year, they ought to be pretty much where you need them to be. So I maybe you know you don't give them enough credit for this year, this year three, uh, but uh, I, I guess what I wanted to see was was building on what they did the first half of the season through the the uh, conference schedule and didn't see that and and need to see need to see more of um, You know, just discipline and toughness and fundamentally sound basketball and the ability to get the game to the kind of game that they can beat people. And I'm never going to expect them to be, you know, able to play, say, half-court basketball and really, really crush people. Uh, But, you know, to be more like a a North Carolina where they are able to get the game up and down and really uh, allow their talent, their ability to run and jump and shoot the ball I and mean, that was the amazing thing that this team had had their great three-point shooting uh all through the you know four guys on their roster so they had a lot of ways they could beat you if they got the game to the way they had to get it in order to beat you and so often they couldn't do that and that was the failing i thought and uh, and is there too much emphasis on that i don't know i i think you got to focus on what you got to do to get better because this team could be really, really good, and I think it could have been better than it was this year. So that's just my take. I just have high expectations for them, and uh, I want to—I wanted to see them, you know, be that team. I mean, I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost a crime that in a Pac-12, the two LA schools don't dominate. They really should. I mean, all the players basically are coming out of LA. Uh, they ought to be able to dominate. And uh, I think that will start happening next year. And, you know, they had their break this year with UCLA matching up so badly athletically. But UCLA is getting a lot of players in next year. And um, and I don't think that game is going to be a gimme. So I think USC really has to get better.
0: All right. Well, Dan, (laughs) a lot of topics today. We uh, went a little long. That's okay, though. It was good. We hadn't had you on for a couple weeks. So thanks for uh, coming on and sharing all your insights. And we'll see you back out there. At practice a little bit later today so we're, we're taping this tuesday morning and uh we'll be back on the practice field tuesday afternoon
1: yeah i can't wait it should be uh fun i'm really enjoying watching as practice as much as we get to see uh unfortunately in the uh media pen uh the good news is they're, they're getting a lot more visitors uh uh coaches players prospects all that the bad news is they're often right in front of us, so uh, yeah, uh, we need a little <laughs> elevated bandstand or something, uh, so we can, especially we don't get to see the linemen work, and that was, the, as you said, the big joy of Saturday is getting to, because of the elevation of where we were in the Coliseum, being able to watch the linemen work, and, yeah. uh, and that was great.
0: That was helped a lot. All right, well, thanks, Dan, and everyone else. Thank you so much for tuning into the Parastyle Podcast. We've got another show coming up. We're going to have our our good buddy Michael Moline is going to come on a show this week, too, talking about the stats and everything. And uh, so we'll have him come on this, this week. So thanks so much for tuning in. And we will talk to you next time. Welcome back to the show, folks. We're downtown today looking for small business owners. Here's one now. Excuse me. Who's handling the marketing for your business?
2: Marketing? My nephew did our Facebook page and the website, but I didn't really see results. I'm just too busy trying to build my business to focus on that stuff. Maybe I have to hire a professional.
0: Well, did you know Circle Marketing's entire team of marketing experts can help you grow your business?
2: Really? But can Circle Marketing handle my social media updates? Yes. New website design? Yep. Online advertising? Sure thing. Make a professional video? Oh, yeah. Help me with marketing strategy?
0: Absolutely.
2: Can they walk my dog, Harriet?
0: Um, no, that's not marketing.
2: Oh, okay. Well, we were on a roll there. So where can I find more information about Circle Marketing?
0: That's easy. Go to circlemarketing.com. When you're ready to hire a professional, full-service marketing company, contact Circle Marketing. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast